the way I justified being tough on restaurants was I said to myself, well, what we're doing here is consumer advocacy. And I never want anybody to go to a restaurant and spend $200 on their birthday meal or taking their parents out or whatever and go to a restaurant that I recommended and they'd be disappointed. They wasted their money. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. On this episode of the Taste Podcast, I welcome back my old friend, David Tamarkin. It was so great catching up with my, my buddy, and we find out about what it's like to transition from a purely editorial role to something in between. It's kind of editorial, kind of marketing, but it's really cool, the work he's doing at King Arthur Flower. I love his latest cookbook. I love his energy. I really wanted to know one thing, and one thing only. What is baking in David Tamarkin's oven? I really hope you enjoy this conversation. David Tamarkin, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Exciting. Exciting to be back again. I know. You were episode, I think, 35. Whoa. So back in the day, four years ago, let me ask you this from the jump. What would you tell yourself back then... If you could go in the in the past, what advice would you give that that 2018 David Tamarkin, the editor of Epicurious, the cookbook author, now working at King Arthur Baking and 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 doing various other roles? What would you tell 2018 David Tamarkin? Get out of Conde? I don't know. I mean, it's even you know, I was like, that was a rough. Those were some rough years in between there, you know, um, at Conde Nast. But I. Actually, I don't know if I would have told myself that because I think we weathered that storm really nicely on the Epicurious side. Um, and it was important. I, I think I think I grew as a leader during that time because, you know, I had to, you know, I had a group of people who I had to, who was trying to shelter and protect from this kind of chaos and toxicity on the other side. Um, so I guess I would have just said, stay calm because I definitely was not calm during that time. Was trust, you know, just trust your team and trust and trust yourself that you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I, I think also I'd be curious if you could give your give that David Tamarkin a little bit about the future um, right now. Like, what what would you say? What what is the future hold for you in 2018? What 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 do you have to look forward to in 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 20 in the future? Speaking back to the 2018 David Tamarkin. What do I have to look forward to in terms of that year or just yeah. overall? Um, I don't even remember. I, I mean, I it's, it's hard for, for me to remember. The, I lumped that Epicurious, those Epicurious years into one kind of lump, so I don't remember what exactly what's happening in 2018. Maybe that was the year the book came out. Um, I, I, had to, I had a lot to look forward to. Everyone I worked with at, at that time at Epicurious was, was a wonderful person. I felt so lucky to work with all of those people, and yeah. I felt really lucky to get that talent. Um, I just had a lot of I had a lot of good working relationships no, and, forward to. And I think a lot of the colleagues that you had there and when we share a lot of friends in the industry and we've known each other for so long as as friends outside the industry that you have a lot of respect. Um, and you handled yourself really well in a tough situation. Conde, you brought it up. Conde was kind of a shit show and you you got through it. And I want to segue into your current career, uh, role your current role and, and really the evolution of this really cool career of yours. And I wanna definitely talk about your time reviewing restaurants in Chicago. And maybe we can talk about the bear. We try to talk about it once a month because obviously food media. But what at King Arthur Baking? What what is your role exactly as editorial director of a of a well regarded company known for flour, but also a lot of baking things? Uh, at King Arthur Baking, I do all the fun stuff, right? So I do all the cookbooks. I am all, uh, all the blog posts we do. You know, we have a very robust blog uh, run by Rossi Anastopulo. Uh, who was, I don't know if you remember, but when we were at the ISCP Awards, that's when she won an award for taste. And, but it was like a mistake, right? So like they didn't announce, she was the one that they, they announced the wrong they, winner. Oh my God. You that was so up. funny. You brought this up. I'll just have to, first off, shout out to Rossi, amazing yeah. writer. She won an ISCP award. Um, they forgot her category during the awards. They like she was she like her and her mom had. had this, hope this is embarrassing, Rossi had flown out to I think it was Santa Fe. Oh yeah, we were we were bunking up in Santa Fe together, 
And um, they're like, we're in the room with the awards are going to be given. And they actually didn't give her award out. And it was at the end of the award. And she comes up to me. And I was like, okay, well, what's up? And then we went to the person running it. And uh, they were like, oh, we forgot. You won. So, it, okay. So, thank thank God that she advocated for herself. Um, but anyway, it's, yeah. just, it's just funny when you're in the industry for so long. Like, I sat there. I watched that happen. And I was like, okay. And then, like, years later, I'm working very closely with this person. Um, so, we run a blog. We we have a, a series of cookbooks, a new cookbook just out now. Um, we just relaunched our YouTube. Cool. Um, so, we do all, like, this editorial stuff. But at the end of the day, really, what I'm doing is content marketing. So, I yep. shifted from pure editorial to content marketing. I'm there to support yeah, the, the product that I that I believe in. I love our flower. I think it's the best flower out there. Um, but what's interesting is that I felt like it was not a very big shift to go from traditional editorial, traditional I'm putting in quotes, editorial uh, to content marketing because at uh, what I was doing at Condé Nast, I was working so closely with the ad side there. You know, this is just a made up example, but let's say Kraft would come to Condé and say we want to spend a million dollars, and I would you know brainstorm, okay, what can I do about cheese to help you know land this account. That's what, what the job was, and that and if that's not, I mean, that's very close to content marketing. That's not. Uh, there's no. There was no strict line uh, at Condé Nast between. I mean, I personally think it's better when you're working for a brand you believe in um, or a company you believe in, and you're doing content marketing as opposed to having to work with disparate uh, clients and having to do content marketing. Well, it's more honest. I.e., sponsored content for like BS brands. Yeah, it's totally more honest. But so you, I'm coming out on this podcast as a content marketer. <laughs> you are a content marketer. I think what we do at Taste um, is similar in that we obviously have a relationship with Penguin Random House, Random House Publishing Group specifically. We cover what we want. I want to. Add, this leads to my question about your coverage. We 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 never have. Um, no one ever tells us to like not cover something. But we of course want to write about our own authors. I am one of them as well at, at Random House Publishing Group because I love our authors. Um, do you get to write about whatever you want? Yeah. I mean, we, we write about baking, right? So right. anything about baking, or actually I would say anything about that uses flour or any of our products. So uh, noodle making is in the scope. You know, I'm really interested in talking about baking for dinner. How do we, you know, how do we, yeah. you know, like savory dumplings and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, anything we want. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, oh, often, you know, like our, my partners in the brand side will say, you know, can I... Uh, can we help support our new gluten-free pizza flour? Or, you mm-hmm. know, we want to really push our white whole wheat. Um, that's sort of... I, I've always felt lucky to be in food media because it's easy to have uh, to, to create coverage for those type of requests. I felt that way at Condé, and I feel that way now. To use that craft example, okay, I, I, I don't personally, you know, buy craft singles for my house. I don't eat those, but I can do... I can cover cheese a hundred different ways, yeah. right? a thousand different ways, and I would love to. Yeah, write put it on ramen. Put put, yeah. put craft singles on ramen. Right. That's like and what I would say. And I would just say we, we don't even have to cover craft singles. We could just like do something about cheese, yeah. so that craft can be on the in the ads. In the same way, like you want me to cover white whole wheat, which is a spring wheat, a soft a whole wheat. It's a beautiful product. I can come up with a thousand different ways to do that, and that's really fun. And so, so yes, I can do whatever we want, but we're also there to yeah support the product. You know where your uh, your very well made bub. Bread is buttered, to use a. Um, Thank you. Um, I I want to ask you about King Arthur in general. I know this about it. It's uh, based in Vermont. It's employee owned. It's not a young brand, but tell me a few things that you were surprised to learn when you took this role and when you started digging into the history of King Arthur. We know the brand. It is great flour. I bake with it myself, um, and they have plenty of products, gluten free products as well. I would imagine. So yeah, tell me a little about the company. I would say that the one of the most important things about King Arthur is that, yes, it's employee-owned, but the important thing is that it's 100% employee-owned. Mm. So many companies can – any company can have an ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership plan, and call itself employee-owned. And that's great, but um, to be 100% employee-owned is a completely different thing. There is no corporate you know, overlord. Um, we are reaping the benefits of our work, and that culture uh, – is embedded in every little thing we do. And that, I think, was a, a surprise to me about just how deeply uh, employee ownership culture uh, impacts the way we work and, and yeah. the way we treat each other. Um, everybody at, at King Arthur, I'm not an employee, I'm an employee owner. We talk about EOs all the time. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was terminology that I had to wrap my head around. I was like, what's an EO? What what it what it does what what being employee owned does is I mean a you know it kind of brings you a little bit closer to your work it, it brings you a little it makes you feel a little bit um, closer to the company you, you feel more ownership um, but I think it also 
creates a culture of respect among your colleagues because you know that everything they, all the work you do together, mm-hmm. you know, it impacts their bottom line and, and your bottom line. And, and, and if we work well together, you know, everybody, you know, the, yeah. the tire ship, right? What's the, uh, all boats rise? Yeah, yes. Something like that. You got it. And I wonder about like profit sharing. Is there like a bonus structure where different levels of employees get different levels of bonus or is it like, how does that work exactly? How do you share profit? Yeah. So, um, there's a, well, there are two, there are two things. There's profit sharing every year. And that's based on how well the company does. Yeah. And that's just a percentage. So, so it's it's the same. Everybody gets the same percentage right. of their salary. Um, and then there's the employee stock ownership plan, which is the the bigger benefit. And the, every year there's a share price. That, you know, we're independently evaluated, and the company gets a share price. Um, and depending on how long you've been in the company, you know, depends. You get more and more shares every year. Mm. The, uh, I think the company puts in twenty percent of your salary to, into the buys twenty. You, you buy twenty. You buy in twenty percent of your salary into the. You don't buy the company. Buy the t- the company does it for you. Oh, I see. Twenty okay. percent. So it's sense. like an added. It's a it's a huge added benefit. I'm not explaining it well. I, I think they give you but stocks for free. Basically, they basically give you stocks. For, it's like yes, it's sto- stocks for free. But 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 to answer your question, everybody gets the same percentage. Right. Everyone gets the same amount of. It's based on, it's based on your salary, but it's the percentage is the same. When did you join? A year and a half ago. I've so, got four and a half more years to be vested. Okay, I got that. But that leads to my question about how the company's been doing. Because you know, uh, and everyone knows who's listening to this, um, during the pandemic, particularly the first uh, year, 2020, flower shortages. Like you, your company was selling out, like literally could not make enough flour. Obviously, we were baking a lot. We needed to stock up. There was a lot of fear of, like, scarcity. So the company must have done pretty well. I guess I want to get into this idea of the, sh- the flower shortage. Do you have any sense of how that happens? Meaning, do you guys keep X amount of flour around? Is it, like, that shelf stable that you or instable that you have to actually make it to order, essentially? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was never a flour shortage during the pandemic. It was uh, perception. Yeah. That, you know, like it was, but what was happening was the demand was was so high that, you know, when flour hit the shelves, it was just being cleared immediately. Same thing was happening with toilet paper, right? There was never a shortage of the product. Mm. It was just a matter of the demand was so outsized that it was just hard to, to pack the shelves. I realize that maybe sort of splitting hairs, but but there mm. was no... There was never a risk that there was going to be no flour. That's what I was trying to ask, and you answered it so well because I did not know that. I assumed that there was actually none available. Like Chemex filters, there was definitely a shortage. Like They weren't making enough Chemex filters, um, at least from what I've read about. But the idea this is more of like an issue with like Whole Foods and brands not being able to get – or. Uh, retailers not getting the product on the shelf. It was about it was about distribution. It was right. about you know. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, there was that distribution was a hampered by the pandemic, and then also the demand was so high that it was. Yeah. And so we did need to create more. We did have to go back to it. We did you know engage another mill to you know oh, up cool. our production. Um, we did different size bags. We did three pound bags instead of five pound bags to get more bags on the shelf. And mm-hmm. so there was a there was definitely an increase that we had to do, but it was there was never any shortage. Now with now. Mm-hmm. Not with King Arthur because we only use American grown wheat, but you know, with what's going on in Ukraine, there is a serious uh, risk worldwide of you know there being some food shortages because you know the, all the grains. Yeah, you know, Ukraine is a massive Ukraine wheat producer in the world. So Russia's playing games there, um, and that's scary. That won't impact us because we don't yeah. use uh, we only use American. Does wheat. King Arthur make it overseas at all? Do you export? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Sorry, Canada. Yes, yeah, sorry, Canada. Uh, you have to like drive over the border um, and and grab that. Yeah, you know. And we're right there. You're so, right there. Yeah, in yeah. so, what's the company store like in Vermont? Is there like a place? I'm rolling in. I'm getting like some cool products. Yeah, the company store is really. I mean, the the cafe and the store. I mean, we, so it's funny. King Arthur is a campus. We have about six. Where are you based? In Norwich, Vermont. Okay. Um, each building is uh, internally known by like a Knights of the Round Table name. So we call that center uh, where the cafe and the store is. That's Camelot to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I work in my office as an Excal- Excalibur. Um, mm-hmm. 
Camelot's great. I mean, it, it is it is a really magical place. I mean, the the passion that people feel for King Arthur is so strong, and you feel it right away. I mean, the, the lines out the door. Like mm-hmm. as an employee owner, I kind I will admit I feel like I should be able to roll in there <laughs> and get my coffee and croissant and roll out before work. I'm like, why do I have to? I get I once got there like. You know, before the doors opened, doors were locked and there was a line. Oh, man. I mean, people are so passionate about it. So that's really fun to see. The, the, the store is amazing. I mean, if you're a baker, it's, you know, it's a, it's like F.A.O. Schwartz yeah. for, for, for bakers. I mean, Definitely. there's everything. It's got the, the banatons, the, the lams, the, uh, all the flowers we sell, which, are, which some of them are very, you can only get there or online. Oh, what's one of the rare, hashtag rare, um, there's like an Irish, flowers. I, a soft Irish uh, wheat flower that's very, very, uh, kind of a, a chunky grain that that's really wonderful for scones um mm. we have a, a lot of our specialty flowers our double o pizza flower is now in stores and that's a huge hit for us but there are some right now like um some of our other pizza flowers are only available there so that's fun and then there's the class there's the, there's the school there too for taking classes so it's a really special place um yeah, yeah I, I recommend I, everyone come, you, especially you, in the fall you can visit you can book those classes online mm-hmm. i'll put mm-hmm. those links in the show notes you can right the classes are online and they're in person. Great. But obviously in person is a little better. Are you uh, biased? Are you more Vermont maple syrup versus Canadian maple syrup now? Absolutely. I mean, my God. And you know what's funny about Vermonters? You know, I'm be slowly becoming a Vermonter, and a lot of Vermonters are kind of jaded about maple syrup, and they're like, all maple syrup tastes the same. But that's not true. Like, I'm going around to the sugar houses. I'm doing my tasting. <laughs> and and first of all, not only is are some maple syrup, sure, is not only is some maple syrup better than others, but also... The cider donuts that you get up there and the maple creamies that you get up there are very different from place to place to place. So I'm working on a, I'm working on a guide. <laughs> well, the Canadians are Canadian listeners. And, and last check, there's about 11% of our listeners are from Canada. So hello, you Canadians out there. I have to say Canadians love their maple syrup and are really hardcore about it. I, I mean, I'm a Vermonter now, so I can't side <laughs> with Canada, but I love Canada. Heading yeah. to Montreal next week. Like, I love you, Canada. Yeah, I love you, Canada. And I'll bring some flour. I'm trying to get my flour to you. Canada. I love that. You're going to bring it in your car. So, David, what gets you up in the morning and gets you excited about baking? Because your your life, your editorial life, not your full life, you've got a lot of cool, we've known each other, You've not just about baking, but... It's like your content world is all around baking. And what gets you excited about baking? Because to me, I'm not that excited. I just, I'm sorry, I'm just not a baker. I do think about baking a, a lot. I mean, like outside and inside of work. And what gets me excited about it is, you know, I'm a bread baker first and foremost at home. Yeah. That's the, what I do the most. And um, it's really hard and my oven sucks and I don't have, you know, and I'm just not, I'm not very good at it. And so I, and there's the, the endless practice um, and the small the small victories. I've always loved that. Yeah. Julie Turson's, ever since Julie Turson had that book out, I love that concept of the small victories in cooking. Um, and you, you know, you get those things every time. And I and I see bread as a metaphor for life, and that is so cheesy. But <laughs> um, you know, when you're making bread, when you're doing the initial mix, many times what you're looking for is what's called a shaggy mass. And I love that term uh, as a metaphor for for writing, actually. You know, I think a lot of parallels between bread making and writing. You know, the shaggy mass is like your first draft. It's like, it's a mess. You know, it doesn't yeah. look good. I mean, and you just have to keep on, you know, doing your folds or you're doing your knead or you're giving it time. You're giving it time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes two days, you know, 48 hours um, to to get better. And so I think that's a that's a that's a metaphor that I c- carried through like my writing life and also just I think through my life in general and I just love the I love the process of of learning and yeah. practicing and I like not being good at something and getting better. It's really cool when you when you can transition from purely writing and doing some recipe development to like really getting your your hands dirty literally and and I'm sure with your cooking school and with your editorial work you are baking a shitload of bread. And um, you're better now than you were three yeah. years ago at bread baking. Yeah, and it takes patience, and that's one thing yeah. I had to learn. I mean, that's 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 one of the biggest things. I mean, you, you just, it just takes time, um, not only time over the course of like months and years of, of practicing, but also just literal time. As yesterday, the loaf, I had to wait for it to rise. I made a pan loaf last night. I had to wait for it to rise an inch above the pan. So many times I get impatient and I just put it in the oven and mm-hmm. it doesn't come out because I didn't wait. And I had to force myself to wait three hours before it was ready. Um, 
and the bread came out beautifully. So, I mean, it just, I'm not a patient person. And so I have to, this is I'm good not for either. me I'm to, sh- I'm to learn patience. That's why I'm not patient with <laughs> cooking. Um, we had Claire Saffitz on recently, and she made this great claim, uh, which I, it really struck me hard, was that, like, dark bakeware is bad. Do you do you subscribe to that as well? Like, dark, like, bakeware that, it like, it's, like, cheap and it burns your, your baked goods? You're disagreeing. Yeah, I'm disagreeing. Like, Claire, and I, I mean, like, Claire. Your buddy, I know you work yeah, with Claire. Yeah, I mean, like, Claire also doesn't like glass. Uh, she she likes glass for pie, which is fine. That's fine, but she she doesn't she doesn't really particularly like metal for pie. I she think. loves glass for pie. That's she true. She loves glass for pie, and I think metal for pie is a little better. Um, I, I don't. I mean, Claire, I mean, Claire has a good point. You have to be careful with dark bakeware for sure. I mean, it is going to impact greatly. But I think for a lot of bakers, are the problem is underbaking more than overbaking. So for those bakers, perhaps a darker bakeware would be better for them because, I mean, I think the mo- the mo- the thing that bothers me is a pale bake. I cannot. Yeah. I don't like a pale bake, so I think for most bakers, they could probably use darker bakeware. David, sorry, for, not sorry, Claire. No, I know she's your she's your friend, and and this is all in good nature. Do you have like way more respect for bread bakers now than you? I know you loved writing about baked goods and, and bakeries, but I mean, how hard is bread baking? I mean, as a, on a professional level, uh, I mean, you know, they're waking up at what two a.m. one two yeah. a.m. They're doing the same thing. I mean, the, the repetition, I mean, is, I mean, it's so monotonous. You mm-hmm. really have to love it. Um, they get arthritis. They get they get that, I forget what's that thing that. Uh, tennis elbow. I know that's part of it, tennis too. Tennis elbow. Yeah. The, the, or they're inhaling flour all day. Oh, flour lung. Fl- flour lung, that's yeah. That's uh, yeah. White lung, I think it's called. Um, yeah. You know, and it, and it's a thankless job. I mean, they're not paid enough. You know, like, I mean, just, you know, we, we just do not have respect for any artisan in this culture, you know, so... I mean, I'm talking in our society. I'm talking about yeah. you know any uh, any craftspeople, including bakers. Um, so I think it's a really so yeah. I have tons of respect for bakers, and I think the only reason any baker would do it is purely out of love. There's a really there's no other reason to do it. it it's not like you're going to get rich. It's not like you're going to get good sleep. Hmm. Um, but w- w- again, w- what I like about it is it's the the repetition and the really going for mm-hmm. perfection each time, trying to do it better and better and better. I mean, I get that. I get a little bit of that. I have a. I if I were a stronger person, oh. I would be a bread baker. You would be in the waking up at two. Is there a favorite bread bakery in New York that you go to? This is completely on the spot. Do you do you have a spot? Yeah, I love Mel on the Lower East Side. Yeah, I think Mel is doing really, really incredible work. I love uh, her porridge breads. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the bread at um, what's the new spot here in, in Rockefeller Center by the. Uh, Lodi? Yes, at Lodi. Lodi's great. I think Lodi's focaccia is is probably one of the best focaccias I've ever had. Until Brooks Headley opens up his spot. His focaccia is pretty dope. Uh, Is he opening a bakery? Well, I mean, at his new restaurant in the old Odessa, I just think Brooks's focaccia is out of control good, but Lodi's focaccia, I've had it as well. Amazing. Really good. Okay, I want to talk to you about reviewing restaurants in Chicago. Um, I didn't intend to talk about the bear, but we can bring that up. But I, I really want to get a sense. You were you were reviewing restaurants for Time Out Chicago. Um, what was your absolute worst meal? You gave me this question beforehand so I could be prepared, and I couldn't think of one. And I'll, And I may have blocked it out. And I thought to myself, even if I could remember, I don't know if I would say because I have – I'm trying to do some reparative work. I, I mean, I yeah. I have I have regrets about the way I Let's go treated there. restaurants when I was a critic in Chicago. Let's go there. Let's go there. I reviewed restaurants as well. I, I'll just speak quickly first. I feel like my – I always fact-checked, so I always felt like my takes were going to be factually correct, but – yeah, it was probably, especially in, like, I was doing, like, 2009, 2010, a little different internet. Yeah, being mean to a restaurant kind of sucks. So what what are you, where are you going with this? I was running restaurant coverage, or uh, you know, at Time Out Chicago for nine years. The whole brand, I built a whole brand over being tough on restaurants, on being, like, snarky and just being kind of bitchy. Mm-hmm. And I think the writing was really good. We had Julie Kramer as as like our writer. She's a great writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I look back on the writing, and sometimes I think I was a much better writer than because I was writing so much. You know, it's like I mean, like yeah. writing like you know thousands of words thousands every day. Week, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like it's crazy. It's like a muscle, and you're like in right. You're like so cut and swole when you're doing a column. Like Absolutely. you're so good. Yeah. Oh my god! First time I've ever been called swole. But you, I'll take you, it. You're a swole. Uh, 
the way I justified being tough on restaurants was I said to myself, well, what we're doing here is consumer advocacy, and I never want anybody to go to a restaurant and spend $200 on their birthday meal or taking their parents out or whatever and go to a restaurant that I recommended and they'd be disappointed and they wasted their money. I don't. I, I think there's some validity to that, but I don't think that that justifies being being snarky, being sort of taking pleasure in cutting somebody down. Um, I won't. I don't think I ever f- went that far and th- felt like, oh my god, I just feels so good to like to make kind of this person's livelihood. But I don't think I was really taking into account like everything that was going on there. All the people who were depending on that on that job at that restaurant, on their jobs on that restaurant, how difficult it is to run a restaurant. Um, and, and I think my palate and was uh, not indicative of a regular person's palate because I was eating out all the time, and I think my standards were, were too high. And I just don't see why, if I were doing it now, why I would spend a lot of words on a bad restaurant. All I want as a consumer now, when I look for a restaurant reviews, all I want are recommendations. That's all I want. Mm-hmm. And and I, I just want to know where I should go. I don't care about where I shouldn't go. So I think you could do that in a much easier way where you could just focus on the good spots and maybe even just have, you know, maybe there's a little sidebar like, wait, wait on these restaurants. Yeah. Wait for them to get better instead of saying, you know, screw these restaurants. Don't ever go there. This chef sucks. Thanks for sharing that. I, I, I want to just build on that a little bit. And I I think I, I wonder about that early food internet, 2007, Eater launched, I believe, and, and beyond um, that early internet and that real snark that you're talking about. And I agree with you fully. I personally, writing about restaurants and being critical in some ways, I didn't understand how the business worked. I didn't understand how margins worked. I did not understand that a closing a restaurant six weeks after opening destroys lives. It literally, people have to leave cities because they can't afford their bills. And I think all of that stuff was not talked about in food media back in that day. And like punching up towards like Guy Fieri, whatever, that stuff like that is fun to read. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you can't punch down. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I felt an adversarial relationship with the chefs in Chicago. I, f- I felt that I was sort of their enemy because I didn't want to be, I saw a lot of other food writers being they're like best friends and like mm-hmm. being mouthpieces for them being and I felt like well these these other so-called you know food journalists food writers were just you know regurgitating press releases and I really was reacting against that too which is another problem in, in the food writing I don't know how bad that problem is now because I'm not paying attention but like that was something else I was reacting to but you bring up the chef, the, the bear one reason I haven't watched the bear is because I feel I will be triggered <laughs> by mm-hmm. my years acting you know working with and 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 covering Chicago chefs, who some of them have real machismo problems and um, didn't like that you know the the critics that had power were like a skinny gay boy and like this twenty three year old woman who who looks like a sixteen year old girl yeah I mean you know they, they didn't like that, that mm-hmm. we had that power and so there was a weird there was a weird power dynamic happening there as well that I wish I could go back and and reevaluate although like I said some of them. Some of that animosity from them was real as well. Yeah, I mean, you definitely had to deal with the uh, toxicity uh, and abuse from chefs who didn't agree in the opinion. But it seems that um, I don't really pay attention as much either. Um, I certainly want to go to great restaurants. I certainly want to go to new restaurants. I certainly want to have new new adventures. But I don't care really about bad restaurants. Like, I mean, I think it's like natural selection. It will work itself out in the wash. Like bad restaurants will likely not stay open. And I do mm-hmm. not think media has to be like the full arbiter of that. <laughs> There's like other reasons that they close. Let's talk about Cook 90. It's a brand that you invented, that you conceived um, at Epicurious. It was definitely, it was like a big part of your your lifestyle. And I, I really liked it. I still like it that you were cooking like literally like 90 meals a month in during this period and really cooking. My question is, is during the pandemic, we became all Cook 90. I mean, really this like vibe that you furthered was really um you were like Nostradamus you were predicting the future because you you really got into this ethic that I think has remained today we're cooking more than ever my question are you still in a cook 90 mindset for January February do you still cook as much as you did then I don't do the program anymore I don't do I don't I don't 
Cook 90 had uh, some rules to it, and one of the rules yeah. was never cook the same thing twice, uh, never use your leftovers more than twice, yeah. I think. Uh, and I don't, I don't follow those rules because, and I don't, and I don't post everything I cook anymore yeah. or anything like that. Um, but I do, I mean, I do and have like for you know for seven years cook eighty five wow. regularly every month. You know, like I mean, I I mean, I work from home. I I cook almost every meal. I I we never ever 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 do takeout. I can count the number of times we've done we've had food delivered to our house in the seven uh, five years we've lived there and. Um, and so yeah, I, so I do. I yeah. really do cook ninety, but I don't follow those rules anymore. And I don't. I would, you know, again, if I could go back and do it, I think I would loosen up some of those rules. Yeah, no, but yeah. I think you are really directionally, at least, so on point with um, this idea that we need to have a plan or a practice for home cooking. Um, how do you then, when you're cooking so much, not get bored? I think exhaustion and boredom affects all of us. I live in the Hudson Valley now, so I also don't ever have delivery and I cook most of my meals. Um, certainly a lot of it's because I just have to. Yeah. How do you like stay that's, fresh? That's real, by the way. Like, yeah, I mean, you're in, that's fine. I'm spending a lot of time in Vermont it's now. Real. And Vermont, like there was a moment during my early trips to Vermont and I was like just staying in a hotel room. I was trying to get something to eat and I was like 830. And I was like, oh, everything is closed. Yeah. It was like a Wednesday and I was like, everything is closed. You're eating like, out of a totally bag. It's, and it's rough. Yeah. You have to go to Target literally and buy, <laughs> right. buy your dinner. Um, nothing right. against Target. I love buying my dinner at Target. No no disrespect. How do you stay fresh though, David? I, mean, I think cookbooks are, are, are a big yeah, way. I mean, yeah, I'm just looking totally. at, I'm just looking at cookbooks. I still have a really big love for cookbooks. And, um, and in the same way that I approach bread making, I, I, I want, there are just things I want to get better at, you know? I want to get better. You know, I, I, I feel real deficiency. There were just some cuisines when I just am not up to speed, right? And so I want to get better at it. So one of the things a couple of years ago, I just felt like I was bad at pasta. I felt like I was bad at salads. Like some of the basics, I'm yeah. like, why do my salads suck? Mm-hmm. I would never have gone to a restaurant. I think I'm like, why do salad books exist? That's kind of dumb. But now I'm like, oh, give me that salad book because I yeah. actually don't know how to make a salad. No, and, and the salad practice is real. And like I love the salad books actually and just the idea of like just getting the water out of the greens and simple stuff speaking of cookbooks you have just published one king arthur baking school and i um first of question is how can a book be a school i mean how does that work and second i just want to hear a little bit more about what you're what you're doing with this with this latest book from king arthur well i i don't know i, I personally i feel like books are the only cooking school i've gone to yeah i've, I mean, I've never gone to any other cooking school totally um and i have learned so much from books uh, and the way we treated this book is it's, we took all the lessons and all the recipes from our baking school in Vermont. We also have one in Washington State and basically made a, a really fun textbook. But it's really, it, you know, it's really for a baker who who wants to know the why behind things um, and have like all of these questions answered. Like, you know, you hear all the there's so many opinions out there and so many. Uh, variables in baking and you can do things so many different ways and this book really kind of takes you through all the different yeah. options and shows you shows you the light on a lot of these things so so it's a, it's a, it's an incredible book I've been baking from it I came in like about halfway through this book and I've been so I don't take a lot of credit for it but it's I think it's so good um, and I've been baking from it every recipe has been flawless so give me one recipe that you feel like you should start with so the first time, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but the first time I ever made rough puff was recently made it from this book, you know. And so if you don't know, rough puff, it's like a uh, sounds like something DMX would make. I'm just gonna say, yeah, I know. R. I. P. But it's like it's a faster form of puff pastry. But got it. it. Takes, oh, I was like, what is this? Yeah, okay. it takes technique, and and you know, I had you know, I wanted to get that all those like flaky layers, um, and you know, this it takes a little bit of um, precision, but the book really lays it out for you. It has really great photos. You, it tells you how to do the folds and everything. And it was it came out like for my first rough huff, it came out so flaky. I did put that on my Instagram. It, I was so proud of it. <laughs> um, uh, so that's that's uh, that's what's being the book that I think is flawless and can be used a hundred different ways, especially if you want to do something for Thanksgiving, like instead of doing pie yeah. dough, doing rough puff. Love that. Um, occasional to mark, and I have to call it out. Your newsletter, you. the occasional. I like it. It's cool. I like. I like that you, <laughs> you've really unlike a lot of newsletters where it's like we're gonna like make this a business and we're gonna like make a ton of money and then you publish once or twice a year. You're actually literally saying it in the title. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna link to in the show notes. I think it's great writing. What what is the occasional Tamarkin? I love it's, it. It's my newsletter. It's my it's my experiment. Really. It's, yeah. It's my it's my laboratory for my for my own writing. Um, 
And yeah, I knew that there was no way I could keep up with a weekly newsletter. And I just want to say that I love I love newsletters. I love I, I love that format. Yeah. I love email. Um, I sign up. I have a sign. I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. You subscribe to the Taste newsletter. I have to shout it out. Yes, I do. And but I don't. I, I sometimes get behind on these weekly newsletters. Yeah, definitely. You know, I feel inundated a little bit. So I yeah. wanted to be. I didn't want to be any. I didn't want to be that. I knew I would never keep up with it anyway. Um, so what I do is I just think about you know. It's a challenge to myself, you know. Can I write? Can I if I can I, if I think of something, I think that oh, that could be a good essay. And I challenge myself. Okay, can I get fifteen hundred words out of that? Can I get two thousand words out of that? And it's just a it's just an exercise, a writing exercise for me. And then the victims are my people who subscribe, <laughs> and, I, and I inflict this on them. Um, and it's really fun. I and, love it. and I hope. It, and and you're right. There's never ever going to be. A dollar made from this. This is the. No. This is just just it's a occasional to exercise. It's occasional to market. I love it, David. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could work on a a cookbook or a food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. David, what would that book be? Uh, it wouldn't take a lot of money. I would uh, okay. do a zine. I mean, I just miss zines. Yeah. I love zine culture, um, and I will. I hope one day I will do that. You know, a couple years. Many years ago, now ten years Middle ago, West. I did Middle West, which was a very, very weird. Middle project. West. I was a subscriber. Uh, I remember it. Yeah, it's super weird. Uh, but it was. But it was. I did it on Kickstarter, which I loved doing that. Yeah. But this time, I would do. I would not do Kickstarter. I would just fund it myself and come out with a very simple zine. Uh, maybe it would have like 15, 20 recipes, a little bit of writing, and I would mail it out anonymously to anonymously. people, and then not even people. You wouldn't buy it. You would just receive it. It would just oh my gosh! I love that idea. So you're gifting recipes and knowledge on strangers and colleagues, and it would be done anonymously. Yeah. Kind of creepy because you'd be like, "Who? What is this? Why is? Why am I getting?" Would this? you personalize each one like a little bit? Yeah, if it's with, anonymous. Yeah, just with, with really really creepy notes, like with like. I love that. So that yeah, I would like you would like know that I knew <laughs> you, but you wouldn't know who I was. Yeah, I love that, David Tamarkin. Thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. That was really fun. Thanks for having me. Teresha Morrell, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to see you, Matt. Many of our listeners know Fatima from Top Chef. But I'd like to know first, how is Fatima different from that persona on Top Chef? Well, um, I have to admit, and it's something I mentioned in the introduction, um, that I didn't watch Top Chef. I don't watch Top Chef. I work with chefs in my real life Mm -hmm. every day, and I don't. I don't feel the need to watch them on television. (laughs) Um, But uh, I got to know Fatima uh, through her essays for Bon Appetit. And I found them inspiring and incredibly human and connected to her tenacity uh, in a very, very impossibly difficult situation. Um, And that's why I wanted to be a part of this project. So uh, after, of course, now I've watched her on Top Chef – I would say the woman that I got to sit with was open in a way that perhaps she couldn't be entirely um, while filming a reality show. Um, I also think that there was so much recalibration that happened toward the end of her life. And um, although she uh, deeply valued her her experience on Top Chef, I think that things like fame and that kind of notoriety change their significance when you're faced with a death sentence. So Fatima was um, diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer, and you um, did not spend years with Fatima. You spent a a relatively brief amount of time. um, You spent a a week with Fatima at the UCLA Cancer Ward, um, which... um, Cannot imagine what that was like to be there for somebody with a purpose of uh, writing a book and and working on a a book. So two questions here. First, how did the project come to you? And second, what was that week like in terms of what you were capturing, which would end up being your wonderful book saver? Uh, Well, the book came into my life because um, the day after I read the second essay that she published in Bon Appetit, um, I got a call from my agent, my literary agent, and she said, are you familiar with Fatima? And I said, I am. I just read her her second essay yesterday. And she said she wants to write a book. And the second essay uh, was about her having a year left. So I knew that that was the parameter. Um, and I said, please put me forward for it. Um, so I submitted some writing samples and um, 
And, you know, I was eventually chosen as her collaborator. Um, and in terms of that week, uh, I should also mention that the project as it was presented to me was to travel yeah. or at least to record the experiences of Fatima's travel uh, in a sort of bucket list year. So a, a book that was really a bucket list book about living her life to the fullest um, in the time that she had left, which I found like a very inspiring mandate. Um, but she didn't have a year. Uh, she was she was so unwell and it wasn't possible for her to travel um, and eat that way. And um, so as I awaited uh, my sort of instructions of what to do next to commence the project, um, eventually I was told by her brother, just come to L.A. And I still didn't understand. There was no way I could what I was walking into. Um, but I realized quickly upon my arrival that this was a very different situation. Um, and I – of course, faltered. Um, I felt strange that she would want to spend time with a stranger, which I was a stranger. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of misconception that we must have been friends, and that's how I got this job. But it's not. Um, we 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 started to work together professionally uh, in this very intimate situation, of course. Um, but I just, as hard as it was, and uh, emotional, it was also very beautiful mm -hmm. to see such commitment uh, from the people who love her. Um, and also just her grit to observe it. And I just decided I would I would stay. I would just stay that week, even if it wasn't a book that came mm -hmm. out of it. Um, you know, I'd flown out there for a week and I just thought, I can do this for this person. I can, I can sit here mm -hmm. if that's what she wants. And so that was what I decided to do. And I, to be honest, didn't think a book would come out of it, but I also mm -hmm. didn't know her at all. So it really was like wow. day three that I found out, I th that I realized I think something is here that we can actually make a book out of even under these circumstances. That's such an extraordinary circumstance to start a book project. I mean, to, to go, and that was such a leap of faith from both sides to go out there, for you to go out there and the emotional weight that you carry going into the situation, knowing that there's a terminal disease for somebody you don't know as a journalist, you're writing about her life and you're writing about her story, but also the emotional weight that you hold and the, the courage that you had to go out there and actually step up and, and do this. And then on the flip side, for her to take the leap of faith towards you, that's very special, and I, I really commend you for entering this um, partnership under these circumstances. I mean, you didn't have a lot of time. Did you think about this going into it? Well, when I went out there, I didn't know that I would only have that week, although, of course, I was. it was a possibility, but I, I mm -hmm. didn't – just like I think everyone who loved her, um, even when you know that things are bad, you still become <laughs> – so hopeful mm -hmm. that something will change. Um, and and that hope is kind of, I think, what powers one forth. But um, yeah, it was a very, I mean, look, I probably will never be under in this situation again. And, and I just, once I got to know her, I felt that this had to be something. Her yeah. story had to be shared. Well, the New York Times reviewed your book very favorably. It's, it's a beautiful review. I'll link to the show notes. The quote is, um, it's Expert execution is a true piece of editorial alchemy. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I can't take all the credit for that, obviously. No. I had wonderful editors, um, Pam Cannon, yeah. um, for a long time, and now um, Emily. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, when in doubt, it was it, just as when writing a article, when in doubt, you know, return to the quotes, the quotes are everything. I mean, in this in this instance, just return to uh, the conversation. I recorded everything, of course, mm -hmm. um, and relied heavily on on those recordings again and again. And then, of course, some work was done. Uh, lots of research and conversations were had with other people that were essential to her life um, once she passed. So let's talk about the structure because it's unique and special. It's not a biography. It's not a memoir. You're not ghostwriting this. You are in some of the book, but there's also a uh, guest essays and there's also her mother is, is involved. So let's talk about the structure and how you landed on that as the, as the <laughs> collaborator, a co-author of this, of this work. Sure. So um, I absolutely entered this project assuming that Fatima's voice would be the only one. It never occurred to me that anyone else's voices would be present. But because of the reduced time that we had together, um, there was concern after 
she passed and we revisited the project to see if we really could move forward with it, um, that there might not be enough. And at the advice of um, her agent and my agent, they said, can you bring in other voices? And um, her brother, who is incredibly devoted and a wonderful human in every way and extremely articulate, would have been a wonderful choice. But I felt very strongly that this had to only be women. Mm-hmm. And um, and her mother um, is also a, a pioneer in many ways, incredibly strong, um, generous and you know, their lives are, are inextricably combined. I'm also very interested in mother-daughter dynamics. And I'm a new mother myself. At the time, I was not a mother and didn't have any plans to become one. But um, at one point, actually, I was a bigger character in this. But in the end, it, I think it's important that it's it's this way, the mother and the daughter. Yeah, it's it's it, that that dynamic is, is special um, in many ways. And, and the way you thread the narrative throughout the book is, is very cool and very special. Um, can you describe Fatima's cooking style? Like, is there a way to, like, put this into a few words about what the style was from her work um, in New York City? She graduated from the CIA um, with, a, with a degree. And then, of course, Chopped and Top Chef. There was some television work. So in her very young career, she did a lot. So what's the style of this cooking? Um, well, so I have to, of course, first say that I never ate her food. Yeah, um, definitely. So wow, what an extraordinary! This is like wow. This is, I mean, to to write without having all these very tangible objects in front of you is is a challenge. And during COVID, where it wasn't yeah. easy to go and experience yeah. some of these things, but what I did have, I think, was some creative shorthand in terms of mm-hmm. conversing with her. Um, we, I had also, I've also gone to uh, cooking school, not to completion to become a chef, but. Um, I also like learned in the old-fashioned way a little bit, and she had gone to CIA. And then there was the commonality of talking about New York and, and food scenes. And um, and I would say that she was evolving and really stepping into her identity as a mm-hmm. chef and her food her uh, foods identity. Um, she on Top Chef, um, Padma at one point says. I wish you were cooking your food, the food, mm. our, or I think she said our food, um, but I, what she meant was, you know, the food of Pakistan with the same um, confidence that she was cooking more Western French mm-hmm. derivative, let's say, food. Um, and uh, Fatima was obsessed with Uncle Boone's, which really mm-hmm. touched me because I think you and I might have gone to Uncle Boone's the first I, I time f- we met. I feel like we did. And, and R.I.P. Uncle Boone's, what an amazing restaurant. Like, yeah. for real. Like, I mean, Thai Diner is great, but Uncle Boone's, special <laughs> place. Yeah. So special. Um, and she really wanted to open a Pakistani Uncle Boone's. And if mm-hmm. anyone is listening and they don't know what Uncle Boone's is, it is a Thai restaurant opened by uh, a Thai woman and her husband, an American, um, both chefs. And and um, it is really thoughtfully executed Thai food um, sourced uh, with some things that you wouldn't find in Thai cuisine in Thailand, but cooked in a very traditional um, and careful fashion in an environment that's boisterous and loud and fun and textured with vintage Thai movie posters on the walls and Thai mm-hmm. covers of American 1970s and 80s music blaring yeah. on the speakers, and it's such good vibes. And that really was a clear, um, a clear description to me of what she wanted because I understood what that meant when she said, "I want to open a Pakistani version." I could, I could imagine yeah. what that must be like. So talent, you're so talented at just like extrapolating such a small amount of information and actually telling the story. It's a real skill, and and it's throughout the book that you can you can read this. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your career. Let's talk about what you like to write about. I, I think you straddled the line between you work with some clients, you do client agency work, but you also are a writer. You write for many publications. Um, so, what do you enjoy writing about? Always characters. That's yeah. always the way in. Yeah. Um, so I think. Uh, I when I went to cooking school, I realized I didn't want to be a chef. Yeah. Um, but I loved the way uh, food and cooking and and eating um, made me think about life and people, and so that's always my way in is um, trying to 
uh, discover the character behind the, the food, yeah. the person in the kitchen or in the vineyard. Um, and so I guess this is, this is very much an extension yeah. of that. I mean, that's good, good storytelling, uh, 101. And I have to ask, are you working on any projects right now? Is there anything that you can talk about? I know this book was reported in 2019 and it's out now, but I mean, it was a long journey to get to the publication, but it's been done for a while. So there must be some other items. Well, actually, no. It, it hasn't been. No, we we finished this uh, <laughs> this year. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it, it took a while. Yeah. We didn't sell it until 2020, right before the pandemic. Got it. Um, so, so this uh, has been, you know, a, a labor of love um, for the last few years. And yes, I am working on something, but it's a personal project. It's, cool. It's not for someone else. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I I'd like to know um, back to Fatima, like. Is there a last word that we should know, and though this is challenging, but let's try to do it, that we should remember how to remember her legacy? Gosh, I think it would be hard to say one thing, but I think yeah. the gist of it is to live and to mm. get over the excuses and the the things that we say, oh, I'm too busy to do that thing I've always said I wanted to do because I've got to, you know, pay the bills or or keep my visa or, um, you know, their excuses. And I think she just wanted more life. So um, for me, the message I've taken as a, as a mandate um, in my own life is to um, take it all in, whether mm-hmm. e- even the bad stuff. That it's you can't you can't just have one side of it. The good comes with the bad, mm-hmm. and that's living. And to just kind of like throw the shutters open and just like yeah. take whatever weather is coming, you know, my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also just you know leading with love. She really wanted um, people to just accept and embrace each other. And her, you know she beautifully uh, wanted to help that happen here in the States um, through the taste buds. She wanted uh, people to to be intrigued by Pakistan through mm-hmm. their taste buds and her beautiful, generous food and hospitality style. Mm-hmm. So I, all of these things, uh, I think, already existed in my heart a little bit. But, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget and to just get busy uh, with the everyday and, like, forget how you should be living. Tarja, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, or the burden of time, meaning there is no deadline, you are a writer and have many deadlines, so you know how they can go, but there is no deadline here, what would that book be? I'm probably, like, living it, I guess, right? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like looking at life through meals and mm-hmm. and and what kind of life are you living if you're kind of looking for great food and, and great gatherings at the table and um, adventuring and getting out of your comfort zone and exploring other cultures. I mean, it's all – it's all it's kind of like a, a mantra, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.